Hey there, welcome to New River Church's podcast. We're really glad you decided to join us for our study in the Gospel of Mark. We pray that it blesses you and that your mind is blown as you encounter Jesus Christ in a fresh new way. If you're looking for more information about New River Church, just check us out at newriverchurch.org. If you would, please turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 2, and we're going to read Mark 2 verse 10. And um, actually, it's good if you have your Bible open the whole time today because we're going to cover a pretty big section of Scripture, okay? We're going to cover from Mark chapter 1, verse 16, all the way to chapter 3, verse 6. So it's like, it's a big passage. Um, So just keep your Bible open. But I want to start with chapter 2, verse 10, because this is the center statement of this whole section. So Mark chapter 2, verse 10, Jesus is speaking and he says, but I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. I want you to know, Jesus says, that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So as I've been praying about this this morning, I really do sense that some of us are going to be delivered from shame today. Maybe one, maybe two. Whether it's something that you did a long time ago or just last week, it really doesn't matter. If you notice that shame has a way at times of just grabbing hold of our heart, and, um, and it's really self-destructive, shame is, because it's, it's weird. It's this thing that, you know, it's I feel bad for something I did before, but that almost sets me up to do it again and again, and then I get in this cycle of, it's a, kind of, it's a hopeless cycle of, well, why bother trying anymore? And I don't know if that's where you are this morning, but I want you to hear the words of Jesus that you may know the Son of Man, has authority on earth to forgive sins. Now, we're starting there because, as I said, this is like the center statement. This is the axis of this whole section. You know, one of the things that happens a lot when people are reading the Bible, especially the Gospels, is it's easy to read this section by, like, subsection by subsection. You know what I mean by that? Like, like you look in your Bible, this verse, verse 10, is a part of a pretty famous story. Jesus is teaching in a house, and these four friends, they take their paralyzed friend, and they cut a hole in the roof, and they lower him down. And, and a lot of people love that story. And you could preach a whole sermon on just that story. In fact, I'm pretty sure I've done it before in the past. And you wouldn't be wrong to do that. But when you do that, you also miss the the, the flow of where Mark is going. Like, Mark is making a point as a writer. Does this make sense? And so one of the questions that you need to ask when you're reading Mark is, why does Mark choose to tell me this story? And why is he placing it here? Of all the things that Mark could have told us about Jesus, and there were many, don't you agree? In fact, I think it's in the Gospel of John. Like, if he were to write down everything, there's not enough libraries to fill it all. Like, Jesus did, Jesus did and said much more than just what we have written for us here. And so we have to ask, 
Why does Mark choose this story from the life of Christ and choose to tell us this story here? Because Mark is putting these together in order to make a point. And we've learned last Sunday that Mark's point is that Jesus is the gospel. That's the first verse, Mark 1.1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And the word gospel means good news that changes everything. And we learned last week that the Romans used that word when they were celebrating the birth of a new Caesar. Because they believed that the Caesars come from the gods, and so naturally, if the gods have sent us a new Caesar, that's good news that changes everything for the Roman Empire. And Mark is borrowing this language, and he's applying it to Jesus, and so he's directly challenging the Roman establishment, and he says, you think that your Caesar is a gospel? Jesus is the gospel. He is the good news that changes everything. And this is what Mark is doing. And so we noted last Sunday in the first 15 verses of chapter 1 that Mark basically lays out a, a comparison and contrast, um, in a sense, uh, between Jesus and the Caesar. Like, hey, your Caesar, uh, your Caesar has heralds at his birth that go around the Roman Empire telling everybody about the gospel of his birth. <laughs> Jesus had a herald. And, and his herald had a prophecy about him 600 years before he ever was born. See? Oh, and, oh, and you think your Caesar, like, he, um, he's the gospel, like he's the good news that changes everything. Jesus is actually a new beginning to creation. And he, he reunites heaven and earth. How about that? See? Oh, and you think your Caesar is compassionate because he stands on the balcony of his palace and he waves at you and he tells you how much he cares and he throws out a breadcrumb every now and then, right? Oh, Jesus, he left his palace and he came to your wilderness and he rescues you from that. See, that was last Sunday. That's introduction, right? So now Mark is building this case through his whole book. And the very next thing that Mark demonstrates for us is that Jesus has ultimate authority. So if Jesus is the gospel, Jesus is going to have to have ultimate authority. And he demonstrates this by proving Jesus' authority over demons. Jesus has authority over illness, over the physical world. And Jesus has authority over religion itself. So this is what he's proving for us. This is what he's demonstrating to us in this section. And like I said, the center of the very section is verse 2 there in chapter, verse 10 in chapter 2, where Jesus says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. See? So let's just take a look at this. What we're going to do is walk through it. We're going to, I'm going to literally read this whole section piece by piece, but uh, we'll walk through it and I'll kind of show you, we'll flesh out Mark's argument, okay? So he starts off in chapter 1, verse 16. He says, as Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said and I'll send you out to fish for people. At once. How quickly? At once. They left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets without delay. 
How fast did he do it? Without delay, he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. You, you get the sense that this is happening quickly. And Mark does this. He uses actually the word immediately is his favorite word. He uses it 42 times in his little book. So he loves the fast pace. And here's Jesus. He's down by the lakeside. And he says, follow me. Follow me. Follow me. And they do. Now, who does that? Someone with authority. Amen. See, here's how someone without authority would do this. Someone without authority would say, um, would you consider following me? Like, I think I have some good things that I might want to offer to you. And if you do, I can offer these benefits. And it would be really great if you followed me. See, that's how somebody who doesn't have authority does it. But someone who does have authority just steps onto the scene and says, you with me. And they go, notice, no delay. There's no hemming and hawing. There's no, let me think about that, Jesus. Like it's right now, they follow. So Mark wants us to know right out of the gate that Jesus is operating with authority. And look where Jesus goes. He doesn't go to the synagogue doesn't go where they're studying the Bible and where, you know, the best and the brightest are located. Jesus is down by the seashore, down by the lakeside, calling fishermen, average, normal, workaday people, come follow me. Again, that is not how a Caesar would behave. Do you, do you see? I mean, you see that through the whole book. Jesus is behaving unlike any other leader that we've ever encountered. You know, any other leader has to pick the smartest and the brightest and the best connected and so forth. Jesus, anybody, come follow me. And this is great news for you and me, isn't it? Because you might not feel worthy to follow Jesus. Well, newsflash, none of us is. And he still invites us to follow him anyway. And he'll change our lives when we do. And we go to the very next scene. They went to Capernaum. And when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority. Not as the teachers of the law. Just then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus told him sternly. Come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching and with authority. He even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of the Galilee. Can you just picture this little scene? It's a sunny, bright Saturday morning. It's a nice Sabbath. The boys are all at the synagogue having a great Bible study. And Jesus is teaching them. And they're blown away by his teaching because he teaches with authority, not like their teachers do. You see, the way that their teachers would teach is their teachers always had to cite other teachers in order to give credibility to their teaching. So a rabbi would say, well, you know, as Moses says, 
da 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 da. Or as rabbi such and such would say, blah, 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 blah. And this is how they would, and Jesus comes on and he says, hey, I'm telling you, totally different approach. And these men are just amazed, like, how do you have this authority? And then in the middle of Jesus' great sermon, this demonized guy speaks up. He says, hey, I know you. You're the Holy One of God. And Jesus goes, shush. And the demon leaves the man. And the man is instantly restored and healed. And the people in the audience are like, who is this? Not only does he teach with authority, but he commands demons. See? So the first thing Jesus demonstrates is, or the first thing that Mark shows us that Jesus does is exercises authority over the spirit world. Jesus orders demons around. Why? Because Jesus is the CEO. He's God. He's the one above all of the spirit realm, right? So these de a demon is just an underling, and Jesus gives them the command, and they have to obey. Okay, next scene. As soon as they left the synagogue, notice as soon as you notice Mark does not give us time to take a breath. It's like, oh, one scene, right to the next, right to the next. He's moving us. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. You notice that Jesus doesn't even say anything here. He just simply touches her hand. It's a brush of his hand. And this, and this woman's fever is gone. Not only is her fever gone, but she's immediately serving. So her, her, she's restored back to complete health immediately. You see that? Like there's no recovery time. It's not like Jesus goes, hey, I'll pray for you. And six days later, she's better. It's, it's just his hand brushes her. And her fever goes away. And she's immediately talking about what to make for dinner. And she's taking care of everything. Mark wants you to know that Jesus has authority over illness. That Jesus can just, he just touches it. Like his very presence and illness goes away. And there's a total restoration back to complete health. Who has this kind of authority? Well, the one who is over everything has this kind of authority. And then... Look what happens. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and all the demon-possessed. <laughs> the whole town gathered at the door. Can you imagine that scene? Can you imagine all of Manchester at your front door? The whole town gathered at the door. He says, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak. Why? Because they knew who he was. So interesting, little factoid, the first people, first ones in the Gospel of Mark to recognize Jesus' true identity are demons. The very first ones. I wonder why. Well, they've known Jesus since before the creation of the world. Have they not? And, and here they've been, they've been mucking things up down there in Palestine in the first century, wreaking havoc in people's lives, and here comes the boss. 
right? He stepped in. And now these demons, oh, hey, we know, oh, yep, they, they, know who they, they know who he is, and they know who they are in relation to him, and they're like, okay, we're out. And Jesus commands them. See that? It's amazing. Now, put yourself in Jesus' shoes for a moment. If you have this kind of power and this kind of authority, if you're carrying around these kind of goods, what does that do to your psyche? And what does it do to your personality? Well, Mark gives us a little snapshot, actually two little snap. These next two snapshots kind of give us a piece of Jesus, the private Jesus. You know, you have the, you have the public Jesus where he's out healing, teaching, and doing them, all that. And then there's the private Jesus. And Mark does this a few times through the book, and I love this because he gives us these little parenthetical glimpses into the private world of Jesus. What is Jesus like when nobody's looking? And and it's cool. So here's what happens. After this huge day, after Jesus' popularity skyrockets, you, you catch that, skyrockets, like his Instagram thing just blew up. Kim Kardashian's calling him. She's inviting him to the next part. Like he, is, he has skyrocketed to fame, okay? What does Jesus do? Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone's looking for you! Jesus replied, Let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so I can preach there also. That's why I have come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. The humility of Jesus is absolutely stunning. Because I think if I had this kind of power, I'd be starting Doug Rouse Ministries. You'd be buying me a plane. I'd be going around the world. Like, and wouldn't that be you too? I mean, if, 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 if I woke up one morning and I had this kind of power, and, and, yet, and yet I see Jesus who possesses it, the authority and the power. And you find that he is, has this secret place with the Father that he loves to go to frequently. And that he's never attracted by the crowds. So you would think, man, here's this huge crowd. Let's start selling tickets. Man, this thing's blowing up. This is awesome. And what's Jesus do? He gets up early to pray and then he leaves town. <laughs> See, he's a leader unlike any other leader you and I have ever encountered, isn't he? The next scene really shows that. It says, a man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus was indignant, and that's how the new NIV says it. The, the old NIV says that Jesus was filled with compassion. And most Bibles say compassion. And so can I just humbly suggest that the word compassion is better. Um, I'm no Greek scholar, but the word compassion is a better word. So Jesus is filled with compassion. And he reached out his hand and he touched the man. And he said, I am willing. Be clean. Those are three awesome words. Have you ever had Jesus say to you, I'm willing? Lord, will you? I am willing. 
Immediately, how fast did it happen? Immediately. The leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. Don't overlook that. Jesus, Mark is being very, uh, it's, a, it's a very strong word, with a strong warning. He says, see that you don't tell this to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. He blabbed it everywhere. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. So the first, the first feeling that we see Jesus having in the Gospel of Mark is compassion. It's the first time Mark expresses something that Jesus felt. Isn't that interesting? Well, it makes perfect sense because in, the, in Exodus, in the Old Testament, when God revealed himself to Moses, remember how God revealed himself to Moses, that he is the compassionate and gracious God, long-suffering, right? And so here, the first time we see Jesus, the first, the first glimpse we get into the heart of Jesus, and what do we see? We see Jesus as compassion for a man with leprosy, it says. Not only that, but you see Jesus then submitting to local authorities. Do you see what Jesus tells the man to do? I want you to go and show yourself to the priest. So you've been healed, this is great. Now go, show yourself to the priest, make the proper sacrifice, and then go on your way. You see, what Jesus is doing is he's submitting to the Levitical laws. This was their law, that whenever someone recovered from leprosy, they were to go to the priest. The priest would make an inspection of them. And if the priest determined that they were clean, the person would have to make a sacrifice. And then they were permitted back into normal community living. Their, their leprosy was gone. And so Jesus is having this man submit to a local priest. Jesus is following, see, the law. Now, if you have this kind of power and this kind of authority... What would you do? See, I'd be like, oh, forget the local schmuck priest. Hey, I just healed you. You know, you see what I just did? See, I think it would be really tempting to skirt the norm, skirt the law, and just kind of create my own thing. But Jesus doesn't do that. So someone with all authority and all this power still submits to a local priest. And we saw this last week in chapter 1. Jesus, in one breath, John the Baptist says, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. And in the very next sentence, Jesus comes to John and says, would you baptize me? See? And here we have this, a similar sort of dynamic. Jesus is casting demons out. He's healing fevers like that. All, the whole town's at his door. And Jesus says, you know, you're going to need to go talk to the priest and make sure you get this squared away. It's, it's amazing. What's even more amazing is that Jesus demonstrates, he has this power and this authority. He demonstrates this level of respect for a local priest. And yet the religious leaders never returned the favor. And this is what Mark shows us in these 
next set of stories. So I just, real quick, before we read them, just want you to catch a common thread because these next six stories actually, um, they demonstrate Jesus' authority over religion, okay? And here's how we do that. Here's how we know that. Look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, the story of the men dropping their friend through the roof. You notice who Jesus has a conflict with there? The religious leaders, Okay, now you go to the next story. Jesus calls Levi and he's having dinner at Levi's house. And who has a problem with that? The religious leaders. And then you come to Jesus' question about fasting. That's the next section. And, and who has a problem with that? The religious leaders. And Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. That's the next section. And, and who clashes with Jesus there? Okay. There's a theme here. That's not a trick question. The religious leaders. And then chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, Jesus heals a man with a shriveled hand on the Sabbath. And who gets upset with him? The religious leaders, right? So each one of these stories, Mark is putting all these stories together. Remember, you have to ask this question. Why is Mark telling me this story? Well, in this section, Mark is showing us the clash that Jesus is having with religious leaders. And ultimately, Jesus comes out on top because Jesus has ultimate authority. Follow? So now we dive into it. Chapter 2, verse 1. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone. And they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. So here's this first little snapshot. Jesus is teaching in a house and it's a great moment. And this friend, this guy comes down and, you know, the friends and Jesus says to this man, your sins are forgiven. This is how he starts. Now that is odd. The question that the Pharisees and teachers of the law had is a legitimate question. Who can forgive sins except God alone? There's nothing wrong with that question, wouldn't you agree? And, and they're right. God is the only one who could forgive sins. And of course, they're not recognizing that Jesus standing there is God in the flesh, but their question's not wrong. And then Jesus asked this question, and I love it. There's so much in there. Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or take up your mat and walk? I mean, you, you acknowledge, right, it would be a lot, it's a lot easier. 
because there's no evidence that someone's sins have been forgiven. There's no immediate evidence, is there? Oh, your sins are forgiven. Great. Well, that's really nice of you. Or I could say, or take up your mat and walk, and if the guy's still laying there, I'm a fraud. See? So Jesus is saying, which is easier? But think about this from Jesus' perspective. Knowing what you know about Jesus, which is easier for Jesus to do? To forgive the man's sins or to heal him? See, it was going to cost Jesus his life to forgive the man's sins. So for Jesus, it's easier to simply say, take up your mat and walk. And that's what he does. He says, take up your mat and walk. And the guy gets up and he goes home. Jesus demonstrates with this, I have the authority to do what I'm doing. I can command illness. I command demons. And I also forgive sin. This next little snapshot, we go on. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous but sinners. So Jesus is calling another disciple, isn't he? And this time it's Levi. Levi is also known as Matthew. Um, we, he's got the same name. Matthew is his Greek name. Levi is his Hebrew name. He went by both names. And so here Mark calls him by his, by his Hebrew name, Levi. Levi's a tax collector. And in this day, tax collectors were the bottom of the barrel. They were they were reprobates, scallywags, ne'er-do-wells. They were thieves. They, were, they did not have good reputations. And not only that, but Levi is a Jew. Tax, many of these tax collectors are Jews working for the Romans, right? which really puts them in the bad graces of their fellow Jews. But think about this from the perspective of Mark's original audience, who were Romans. If you're a Roman and you read this, you're like, oh, he's working for us. Cool. You follow that? Mark is a great writer. And he even uses Levi's Jewish name to emphasize that. Here's a Jew working for the Romans. I don't wanna, I just, you don't want to miss these little nuances. and I love them. They make the text come alive. So here's, so, here's Le, now, so here's Jesus. Now, he's having dinner at Levi's house and all of Levi's tax collector and sinner friends, they come. Don't miss this either. This is significant. Let's, let's go back a little bit and follow the flow. What's the first feeling that Jesus has we see him having towards the leper? Compassion. He has compassion. And then in the very next snapshot, the man through the roof, Jesus forgives sins. And then in this very next snapshot, Jesus is having dinner with sinners. You catch this. It's his compassion that leads to his forgiveness 
that led to fellowship with sinners. Do you see his heart for you? Mm, I love that. Now, the religious leaders, they don't like that at all. So they criticize him for having dinner with sinners. And, and Jesus makes this point, you know, it's not the healthy who need a doctor. It's kind of a dig, isn't it? You guys think you're healthy, so you don't think you need a doctor. I've come for those who actually know they need help. So that's who Jesus is with. And I love that. That's a good word for you and me. Because, you know, you might be a scallywag, a ne'er-do-well, tax collector type, you know. And Jesus has come to have dinner with you. He has compassion, and he forgives, and he wants to have fellowship. Do you catch his heart? Oh, such a beautiful heart he has. Now it says the next scene, moving on. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and they asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, well, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day, they'll fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wine skins. So John's disciples, that's John the Baptist's, his disciples, and the Pharisees, they're fasting. Maybe they were hangry. I don't know. But they weren't really happy about the fact that Jesus and his disciples were not fasting. And you notice what Jesus claims? He claims that he is the bridegroom. For these ancient Jews, that is an audacious claim. Because you see, in the Old Testament, God calls himself the bridegroom and Israel the bride. And here Jesus is essentially claiming to be God. See? Well, obviously, they don't like that claim. So we move on. It heats up. These next three stories, actually, now you can sense Mark is building up to like this to this punch at the end. So now the heat is increasing on Jesus. The next scene, Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. One Sabbath, Jesus is going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to them, look, why are they doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat, and he also gave some to his companions. Then Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath." So these Pharisees, teachers of the law, criticized Jesus and his disciples for picking grain on the Sabbath. That's like working, in, according to their rules, working on the Sabbath. That's a no-no. And then Jesus makes this claim, actually, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. Now think about how this would land on these people. Jewish people, up to this point, had been honoring the Sabbath for roughly 2,000 years. Roughly 2,000 years, every Saturday, 
every Saturday, set aside as a day for rest, a day for worship. And here's Jesus saying, I'm the one you've been worshiping every Saturday for the last 2,000 years. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. How do you think that they handled that? Well, they were upset about picking, they were upset about picking grain. That really gets them upset. And Mark shows us that in the next story. Now it culminates with this next story. Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Well, then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger. So what's the second emotion that Jesus experiences in Mark? Anger. The first emotion is compassion towards one who's hurting. The second emotion is anger towards ones who are stubborn. He says, anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. Jesus says to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. And that ends this little section on Jesus' authority. Here we are. We're we're just at the beginning of chapter 3, and they're already trying to kill Jesus. Isn't that something? So Mark wants you to know right away, Jesus is stirring things up, isn't he? And they don't like it. Not one bit. But is Jesus stirring things up the way that we would think of him as stirring things up? He's not a rebel, is he? He's he's not this anarchist who's just, you know, this anti-establishment revolutionary who's... That's not how... That's not him, is it? Jesus is just stirring it up by his presence. He's just there. And these guys are not liking it one bit. The fact that Herodians and Pharisees came together to kill Jesus is also stunning because you couldn't find two more different opposite groups of people. The Herodians were Jews who sympathized with Rome. And so they were, you know, they basically had compromised much of Judaism, much of their religion and faith in order to get into the good graces with Rome. They're Herodians. They were from the party of Herod, so they supported Herod, right? That's, that's where the name comes from. Pharisees, the name Pharisee literally means separatist. They were, they were the ones holding on to the purity of Israel and her way of life. So you could not find two more opposite groups of people. And what did they come together to do? Kill Jesus. See, there's nothing like an enemy to bring us together, right? What do they say? An enemy makes friends or something like that? Like, there's a saying like that. And these guys were enemies, but then they had a common enemy, and now they're working together to get rid of Jesus. Why? Because he was a threat to their established way of life. And they knew it. 
When you have someone who demonstrates this kind of power, this kind of authority, but who operates in this kind of humility, what do you do with someone like that? They're unstoppable. And this is Jesus. And these men knew it, and they wanted to get rid of him. Do you see how Mark builds his case? I love that. And we, and we wouldn't catch that if you just stayed in one of those little subsections. That's why I felt like we needed to read the whole thing, because you've got to see his flow of thought. Mark is building a case. Jesus has ultimate authority, ultimate authority over demons, ultimate authority over illness, ultimate authority over religion itself. And matter of fact, religion is supposed to be all about him, isn't it? But isn't that the problem in religion? Religion ends up making it about itself, doesn't it? It becomes about the religion and not the one that the religion's meant to point us towards. See? And Jesus establishes authority over all of that, doesn't he? And he simply says, hey, you, follow me. I love that. Jesus didn't come to start Christianity. There's nowhere in here that says that. Christianity's our mess, I like to say. That's, that's what we created. We're the ones that put that system together. Jesus simply said, hey, you, follow me. It's that simple. It's life-changing. So now, let's just wrap this up. I've got a couple of observations that we can wrap this up with, okay? And that's this. First of all, the presence of Jesus disrupts our little world. Look at what happens in this section. Demons get stirred up. Family fishing businesses get put on hold. Synagogue services got disrupted. Rooftops got ripped open. Sabbath traditions get blown up. Social norms get turned upside down. Jesus disrupts our little world. And then, see, therefore, as Jesus says in chapter 2, verse 22, he says, we need new wineskins in order to even hold what he has to offer. Does this make sense? Yes. This is why we need new wineskins. Because, because Jesus is completely different, unlike anything or anyone that else that we've ever tried before. See, you know you have a sin problem. We know that we're broken. We know that. We don't have to look far. I, I know that I'm broken. Can, right? Can we be honest? And, you know, we, we can see it, and then we see all of the ways that we've tried to fix the brokenness on our own, and that brokenness, and that just makes it more broken. See? And Jesus says, I've come, his presence disrupts all of it, not because he's rebellious, but because he's infinite, and the infinite moves into the finite, and the finite gets shook up. And Jesus says, you're going to need new wineskins. You're going to need a whole new way of thinking just to embrace this life that I'm bringing to you today. See, have you ever noticed that the closer you walk with Jesus, the less of the old you you can take with you? General rule of thumb. You know, the, the, the new me in Christ, I just can't wear the same old clothes that I used to wear before I met Christ. I just can't. They don't fit. Those habits, those lifestyle choices, those, those beliefs, those attitudes, they're all old wineskin. They just don't fit. 
They need to go. Jesus is making everything about you and me new. Everything. And I don't know about you, I'm ready to embrace it. Because the old sure isn't working. Amen? The second observation we can make is this. Jesus commands demons to leave, but he invites sinners to follow. See that? The first people to follow Jesus were fishermen and a tax collector. And Jesus called them while they were at work. He didn't call them in a synagogue. He called them at work. Which leads me to think that maybe more is going on where you work than you realize. The work, the best work that Jesus is doing isn't really in this room. It's where you work every day. That's where Jesus is working. And I love the fact that Jesus invites sinners. I love that. And then the third observation is this. The first ones to recognize Jesus as God are demons. We noted that earlier. So that means this. Knowing that Jesus is God is not what saves you. Demons know that Jesus is God. I think we would agree. They're not going to heaven. So knowing that Jesus is God is not what saves you. Trusting in Jesus to forgive your sin and to make you right with God, that's what saves you. Trusting in Jesus that you may know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Central statement. Do I trust, can I trust this one to forgive my sins? Because that is what saves you. And then the fourth observation is the first emotion that Jesus expresses in Mark is compassion. The next thing Mark shows us is Jesus forgiving sin. And then the next thing Mark shows us is Jesus having dinner with sinners. And I love that. That compassion for sinners led to forgiveness for sinners led to fellowship (laughs) with sinners. Jesus. I'm so thankful, aren't you? Because I'm a scallywag, I'm a ne'er-do-well, I'm, I'm a loser like these guys. And here's Jesus right in the middle of it all. Not too good for it at all, but yet too good for it. It's amazing. So how about you? I'm going to ask you this question as we close this morning, and that's this. Given what Mark has just shown us, does Jesus have the authority? Are you convinced Does Jesus have the authority on earth to forgive sins? What do you think? He has the authority. He has the authority to send demons fleeing. He has the authority to heal with just brushing his hand over a woman's hand. He has the authority to call people and tell them to follow him. He has the authority over religion. Does Jesus have the authority to forgive sins? Yeah, I think he does. So why are you carrying shame If Jesus has the authority to forgive you, why can't you forgive you? Given the price that he paid and all that, Jesus has demonstrated everything. He's done everything he can to let you know that he's more than willing to forgive you of your sin. When you put the authority and the power of Jesus together with the compassion of Jesus, 
you can rest assured that he is willing and able to forgive your sins. Wouldn't you agree? So I want to just close us this morning by giving you the opportunity to, to, make, things, uh, to make things right. You know, um, you know what we tend to do? We tend to sugarcoat sin. Have you ever noticed how we do that? We tend to downplay it. We, sometimes we don't even like the word sin. Well, I made a mistake, we say, you know. Yeah, let's just call it what it is. It's a sin, and I've, I've done it against the God of the universe. But as we've seen here in Mark, how does God feel about you and me? Well, he's moved in with compassion, and he's demonstrated his authority to forgive that sin. So why do I feel the need to cover it up? Does that make sense? Just let it out there and allow God to deal with it, to forgive it, and to set you free from it. And I believe that's what he wants to do for you this morning. I do. So while we, so I'm just going to pray, and then uh, Karis and Jonathan will lead us in this closing song, and our altar's open. You can come and, and uh, just process this with the Lord, okay? And I believe that this morning here, Jesus will set you free. Thanks for listening today. If you'd like more encouragement or information about New River Church, check us out at newriverchurch.org.